Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is a joy to be with you and to open up God's Word together. Here's what we're going to do. We are going to look at James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, and then afterwards we have the joy of seeing two people be baptized. And so I trust that it will be a joyous day indeed as we worship the Lord and, uh, and honor Him in all that we do. I don't think that I need to try to convince any of us at all that life in a fallen world can be very hard. I think even the phrase, be very hard, is, is not intense enough of how we can feel at times. In his famous book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis actually tells us that the land of Narnia is under the curse of being always winter, but never Christmas. Now, I will say that the overarching principle of his book is Christocentric. Lewis was a firm believer, and the point was, at the coming of Jesus Christ, Christmas came. And so, though we can feel at times that we're living in the land of always winter and never Christmas, we, we have Christ. Jesus has come. He, he lived a perfect life. He took on the sin and the punishment that belonged to us. He died a perfect death. And for those for whom He came, all that He asks of us is to is to turn to Him in saving faith and trust in Him. And we can be saved. And our winter can become a winter with the realization that Christmas has come, and yet it will come in full. But here's the reality of living in a fallen world. We still very much live in a time of winter. Life is hard. There are things that happen that are not fair, that are even tragic. And so for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, how can it be that though Christ has come, we still at times feel that it's winter? What do we do? What do we make of the fact that we still face trials, that we still at times can suffer. Well, this is exactly what James chapter 1 verses 2 through 8 tells us. Starting in verse 2, James tells us, in this moment, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways." 
Well, before we dig in, let's go to the Lord and ask his help as we go into these deep waters together. Oh, Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning. We thank you that you have brought us into this place. And because of that, you have brought various trials into this room this morning. And so as we look to these passages, Lord, would you use them as a means of healing to our wounds? And would you allow us to see and understand what exactly it is that you are doing in these moments in the life of a believer? And Father, I pray now that you would be with me, that you would give me a sensitivity as I look to the scriptures and seek to show us what you have given us. And Father, we pray ultimately that no matter what happens, that Christ would be lifted up, he would be magnified, and you would be glorified. Father, do this for the good of your people. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, two points for this morning. The first is this. God uses trials in our life to strengthen our faith. So what I want to do first is I want to step back for just a moment, and I want us to understand as we just look at, at these, these scriptures from a 30,000-foot perspective that uh, there is something really important that we shouldn't miss. James is trying to help us to understand as he's writing these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that this is a universal experience and a universal question that a Christian will undergo and ask at some point in their life. So what I want us to do is I want us to take just a moment and understand that trials, suffering, they are normal to the Christian experience. And so what that means is that if you are going through something right now, whether it's a a small trial or the greatest trial that you have faced up to this point in your life, the various trials that we can go through, what James is saying in this passage is that it is normal for the Christian to go through these things. And so what that means, even as we encounter these words, is that if you are going through something right now, you are not alone. You are not an outcast. You are not on an island of suffering by yourself. And even in a room this size, what we can imagine is that right now, all around this place, there are people that are going through trials and suffering and in pain. And brother or sister, you are not alone. We have to understand that, that this is a part of the Christian life. But here's his point. It's not just to make us feel better and to be able to look around and think, man, I'm just really glad other people are suffering too. Because, I mean, we could just wrap it up, amen, and pray, and then we're all just walking away super depressed, but at least we're all depressed together. We could do that, but it's not the point of this passage. It's not merely so we can identify with one another in our suffering and simply be content with suffering. His point is that we need to realize that God is using trials in our life to strengthen our faith. They're not pointless misfortune. So often, I mean, I feel this, I feel this. When something in my life happens, I I immediately assume there is no reason for this. Why on earth would I have to suffer through this thing? Why, why would I have to know that people are suffering through this particular thing? They have this trial, this weight, this burden. There's no sense in it. And James would have us to, to look to these scriptures and realize 
there is a purpose in suffering. It's not a pointless trial. It's not just happenstance. That every now and again, you're just going to get your foot stuck in a bear trap as you navigate the path of life. And hopefully when you do, you can, you can handle it. No, his point is that God is doing something in them. Verse 4 tells us that what he's doing is he's producing something in us. Peter uses the language of refining us. It's through trials that God is taking his clay and fashioning it, molding it into what he wants for it. He uses the fire of trial to refine us of the impurities that exist in our life. He, in a word, is making us through trials more like Jesus. But what he says is that as that process happens, as this refining takes place, as these trials enter into your life, God uses them to produce in your life steadfastness, unmovableness, unwavering devotion to him. And so it's through this process of trials that God refines us, he makes us steadfast, and ultimately as we stand steadfast in the face of life, that we will become perfect and complete. You know the famous passage at the end of the the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, where at the very end you hear all of these things, and it's, it's really wonderful, and it's just kind of a hearty amen the whole time. And then Jesus at the end... He's like, and, and by the way, <clears throat> I'm so glad you enjoy all of this. Be perfect as your God in heaven is perfect. And then we're all like, uh, oh, <laughs> okay. I thought it was like blessed are the poor in spirit, bless, bless, bless. And then Jesus hits us at the end with be perfect as your God in heaven is perfect. Do you feel perfect? Do you feel complete? I don't. And there's a young person over here that is verbally not perfect or complete. Good on you, brother. You need to teach them something. No, none of us feel this way. And yet it's the thing that God calls us to at the end of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Be perfect. And we say, Jesus, how? Is it a life of sinlessness? Is it becoming more like Jesus by my works and and just kind of bearing and gritting and just doing the Christian life to the best of my ability, and over time I will just be more and more and more perfect, more and more and more complete, that's exhausting, and none of us can live up to that standard. Enter James chapter 1. The thing that Jesus asks of you at the end of Matthew 5, James is telling us that God does that work in us. He brings us into that perfection. He brings us into that completion through a series of tests. And those tests aren't meaningless. They produce something. They produce steadfastness. And as we stand steadfast and faithful to what God is doing, He makes us more like Christ. And so they're not purposeless. They're not just popping into our life just so we can kind of figure out how to bear them. It's all a part of God's process in doing in us what he asks of us. I mean, I think every one of us would admit that when things are going really well in our life, there there is 
a tendency or a temptation towards pride. That maybe I really am doing this Christian life pretty well. Maybe serving these people in this underprivileged community is actually pretty impressive. Maybe talking to the person after the service that nobody's talking to, I mean, it was a good thing, but (laughs) I'm the only one who did it. There is a tendency in our hearts towards pride and selfishness. So what is it that God uses trials for in refining us of? I think one of those things is pride. Suffering draws something out of us. It it puts us in a compromised place where we can't look at ourselves and believe that grace could be anything other than God's grace. But he also says something at the end of verse 4, and this is just beautiful. He says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, and yet, what? Lacking in nothing. Okay, we need to take a minute to uh, figure that out. I, I, I did drive here in a 2017 Nissan Pathfinder. It could be your car of choice. It is not mine. I am certainly lacking in my, my, my dream car. Um, my feet don't feel great right now. And Brad had this um, geriatric pad <laughs> placed here. And I'll be honest with you, I really like it. It feels nice. But my knees still hurt. There are a lot of things when I look at my life that I'm, that I'm lacking in. There are things that I'm not pleased with. But what James is telling me is that through this series of trials, through this steadfastness as you stand firm in your faith, through the process of God making you perfect and complete, oh, by the way, you will, because of this process, lack nothing. Okay, James, what does he mean? I think what he means is that we will lack nothing because God withholds nothing from us that serves our ultimate good. We lack nothing because God withholds nothing from us that serves our ultimate good. What's the verse? Maybe my young, it's Romans 8.28. Young sir, you're going to have to teach them again. It's Romans 8.28 right? What does it say? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And we give a hearty amen. That's what we want, right? We we do want to love God and we want it to work out for our good. But James says that we are lacking nothing So if God is for our good and we lack nothing, what is it that we do not lack? The problem with Romans 8.28 is that it's typically isolated from Romans 8.29. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might 
be the firstborn among many brothers. You know, I, I feel like sometimes we can forget that, you know, maybe we get lost in the language of predestination and election and I don't know, some of us are like, wow, those are big words. Some of us are like, those are fighting words. And then some of us are just like, I don't understand those words. I mean, it's just big stuff. But, but we look at this passage, and we can do two things. We can, we can look at the goodness that God has for his people, and we can say amen. Or we can skip down to verse 29, and we can be like, oh, predestined. This is, this is wonderful. But they're together. God works all things for the good of those who love him. Why? Because he predestined them to what? Conformity to the image of his son. Why do we lack nothing? Because a good father will withhold nothing that will make us more like Jesus. And so I think what James is saying here in that little phrase, you will lack nothing, is that your God will not let you go through this life more like yourself and less like Jesus. He will do whatever it takes in your life to do what he has asked of you. And the way that he does it often is through trials. Our suffering is not pointless. It's not meaningless. And if we understand it rightly, it's making us like Christ. So I think now we can understand what it means, though, because you have to, listen, if you are going through something difficult right now, and I, I would assume that it's probably just a lot of people that, that feel like maybe life right now is just hard. Maybe there is a trial of, of various kinds in your life, and with various kinds, it comes in various degrees. So maybe you have the greatest trial in this room right now, or maybe you have a trial that's not so bad. And so maybe for someone, you're facing a trial of tragedy, and for somebody else, you're facing a trial of annoyance. But the reality is this, your trial is meant to be seen with joy. What James says is he, he looks to a room of people like us, and he says, I know you're suffering, I know you're going through trials, count it all joy. Count it all joy. So what we have to say then is that, that joy, based on everything that we've just seen, is not an emotion that we're supposed to conjure up. Joy is linked to God's work in us and what it will produce. We can have joy in suffering because we know that this moment, this season, is producing in us a steadfastness which will make us more like Jesus. says count. You, know, you can skip past that word pretty quick too. Count it all joy. He, he could have said so many things there, but he says count, consider, reckon, think. What, what he's saying is it's, it's not a feeling. It, it's not as if you should go through these things and you should feel awesome about them. Or, or that you should look at this situation and be like, man, today is a happy day. Or somehow that you're supposed to adorn joy. That when you walk into a, a public place, you have to put on a smile so everyone knows that you're a Christian who lives in joy. That's not real life. 
He doesn't say, feel happy. He doesn't say, look happy. He says, consider it joy. What James is saying is that in the midst of our trials, what God wants of us is to know joy. To understand that he is working even in these moments. That we can have joy because of what he is doing and what will be produced through this moment in our life. He doesn't tell us to be happy about it or to put on a fake face. He tells us to count it all joy. Why is that? Because feelings are fleeting. And, and emotions, they never last. Man, the happiest days of your life that you can think back on, they're nothing but a memory. But to count, to consider, to reckon what God is doing is joy is to be convictional. To know that even in the somber moments, even in the, the trials and the suffering, the sobering reality is that God is at work. And to be able to say, this is the hardest thing that I have ever faced. And I don't understand it. I don't know what's going on. I'm not happy about it. I can't smile about it. But I know God is at work. Well, friends, that's the conviction of joy. And it lasts for eternity. Uh, my favorite book is a, is a biography, actually. <clears throat> I'm a thrilling person. Um, it's, it's of this... Well, really, he's an incredible man, um, and he does incredible things, and he lived really uh, a remarkable life in, in many, many ways. But the most striking thing about this biography is that there is almost nothing given about this man being a happy man. You, you read of all of these marvelous things, and yet when you're kind of done with this book, you're like, man, this was really a solemn portrait here, here's this remarkable man, and yet I'm not sure that he was ever happy. But as you read the book, and as it unfolds before you, you are left with, with this understanding that this man, he knew the truest and purest joy in life. And you can see it in the way that he lived his life, the things that he did, and yet this man can be described like this. He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. What I want us to understand is that in our suffering, in those moments, we come to know Jesus at the deepest level.
It's in our moments of suffering that we can identify with him at the very core of our being. You see, it's in his incarnation, in his coming as fully God and fully man, that he became acquainted with our sorrows and our grief. He became acquainted with them. He, he came to know them. Our experience became his experience. But what James is saying is that in the same way, in our moments of suffering, through trials, we become acquainted with him. We, we know his experience. We know what it is to live under the weight of sin and to have it at times feel like it's crushing down on us. In suffering, we come to know Christ. We become acquainted with Him. But it's not just becoming acquainted with His suffering. It's becoming acquainted with everything that His suffering means. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Here, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. What are we being acquainted with through suffering? Yes, Jesus in his suffering, but in the glory that his suffering purchased. Our suffering, in a sense, is, is a sign and a picture that for believers, what Christ has accomplished is true and what it purchased for us is, in fact, our reality. So we can suffer knowing that you're suffering as those who have already, in a sense, had their names written in glory and will someday be ushered into it physically as well. But I don't want us to, to look at James chapter 1 and at, like, at all think that it makes trials easy. I, I'm really honestly trying my best to, to not make this seem like a light thing. To, to not make anyone feel like if you are going through something right now, then you should just, you should just count it all joy. No, that is, that is a conviction. And joy may take time. I think it's the reason why we face various trials. I mean, I don't know about you, but if you've ever been a parent, the, the process of discipline, they should tell you this in the hospital, actually. They, they should look at you, and they should grab your face, and they should be like, you're not as smart as you think you are. In fact, you're, you're kind of dumb. Because you're going to think, that this child will be disciplined once and then they'll never disobey again. I mean, before we had our first child, I was like practicing my dad voice. And uh, I don't know if it's Christian or not, but I point at my kids sometimes like this. And I thought before I had a child that it would be like, you stop what you're doing. Because God told me I'm in charge of you 
and you're supposed to obey me. And then life was going to be awesome. It didn't work because they have fingers too. And they point back and they're like, do you know who's in charge here? And I'm like, not anymore. You're not going to learn everything there is to know in one fell swoop. Joy is a conviction that is learned over the course of your life. If you've never faced a trial, then your first major trial is going to be hard. And maybe your joy has never been challenged. But man, sit in a room with someone who has suffered for a lifetime and suffered well, suffered steadfastly. And you're going to walk away from that person in utter amazement. Not because they're the happiest person you've ever met. Quite frankly, if you've gone through that much, you should be a little grumpy. But their steadfastness to trust that even in this, yes, this, trial number 1,567, God is faithful. He is for my good. That's a conviction that's learned over a lifetime. And so none of this is easy. This is not a prescription to make your frown turn upside down. That is not what's happening as we come into this this section of Scripture. As if you're going to walk away from this place all of a sudden with a massive smile on your face or that you're super happy about the season that you're in right now. That's not the point of James. James's point is to establish the conviction that even in suffering, God is at work. He uses it. It's a part of his plan. It's not misfortune that comes out of nowhere. But it's hard. So point two is this. Trials in the Christian life teach us to run to the Lord for wisdom. You know, one of the the characteristics of trials is that almost always they seemingly come out of nowhere, they give us little time to process, and they always leave us with more questions than answers. <clears throat> I, I mean, I don't, I don't know about you, but I know my own life, every time something bad happens, I'm like, whoa, didn't see this coming. Man, this came, this came out of nowhere. That, that's how it feels, Right? Or do you guys like have appointments with suffering? Because I honestly would just rather know. But that's not the way it works. They, they almost always come out of nowhere. And it, and it leaves us almost at times baffled and, and not knowing what to do, not knowing where to turn with more questions than answers. And at times with anger instead of joy, we're, we're a mess of emotion. And this is what makes verse 5 so sweet. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. What is James saying? That in this moment, at the bottom of this pit, what you need to understand is that God is here. He is with you. He really is the shepherd who is walking with you through the shadow, the valley of the shadow of death. 
But not only that, he's not just there to identify with you and to hold your hand. What James is saying is he is here, but what is he here for? Why is he here? Because he is eager to hear from you. He is eager to meet your cry of questioning. He is eager to meet your plea for understanding the thing that you don't understand. So not only is he here in our suffering, he is here for us, waiting on us to cry out to him. And he gives to all without reproach. Well, that's, let's, let's clarify, this whole thing is about Christians. Count it all joy, my brothers in Christ, my sisters in Christ. So the without reproach doesn't have to do with unbelievers and believers. The without reproach has to do with believers. So what does that mean? Believer of questioning, come to me. Believer with the strongest, firmest faith, come to me. Believer who's worn down and can't even find the words to say, come to me. Believer who has more questions and doubts than they did before, come to me. Because I am a giving God. I am a generous God. I am a God who gives wisdom without reproach, without consideration to you and who you are and what you're going through. Come to me. But there is a condition. Ask in faith with no doubting. That there, <laughs> ask in faith with no doubting. In potentially the hardest thing you will ever face in your life, ask in faith with no doubting. I, I think that it would be fair to say that when a trial presses down on you, when you're under the pressure of suffering, that's actually when your weaknesses rise to the top the most. So I'm supposed to ask in faith with no doubting. I'm supposed to have a strong, firm faith. I can't doubt anything. Well, I think we need to let Paul speak to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, <clears throat> verses 8 and 10. So Paul had what we know as this thorn in his side. We don't know what it is, but he did not like it. It was an ongoing trial for, at least as we know, all the days of his life. This, this pest that God gave him as a means of doing a work in Paul. This is what Paul says about it. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Okay, stop. Wait. Paul, the Apostle Paul, you know all of this better than any of us. And you go to God and you know that he's using this thing in your life for good reasons, and yet you're still going to him and saying, God, take it away. I don't want it. I don't need it. Take it. Okay, so, so doubt can't just be an embrace of suffering irregardless of the pain that it causes. We're, we're not being told in James that we should become masochists where we pray and ask God to make our lives miserable. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content 
with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So what does faith and doubt have to do with one another? Well, it doesn't have to do with power or strength. Faith devoid of doubt is not the strongest faith that exists. That's not what he's saying. We're humans. So what is doubt? Doubt has to do with singularity. Because he goes on to tell us not to be double-minded. When you go to God, ask. With, with wherever you are in that moment, with whatever feelings you have, with whatever pain you're under, go to God and ask in faith and don't doubt Him. Don't let this ask for wisdom just be one more wish and prayer in a long series of things that you're trying to do to figure out your pain and your suffering. Go to the Lord and cry out in all the rawness that you have, trusting that He will answer you. He, he's not a glass ball. He is there and He's eager to meet your need. So what is the wisdom then? What is the wisdom that we will get in these moments? I mean, if the trials are of various kinds, then certainly the wisdom will be of various kinds as well. There will be things that you will learn in your life that I may not have to learn in exactly the same way. So in one sense, the wisdom that we will receive will be exactly what we're supposed to receive, when we're supposed to receive it. But also, I'm not God, so maybe we'll never receive it until we get to heaven. He's God. So the exact lessons I'm not really sure of outside of what we know in James chapter 1. And the wisdom will for sure be this. That God will give us the ability over time to understand that he is using trials for good. He will ingrain in you the conviction that even these moments, as awful as they may be, are being used by God for good. And so you, you may not walk away the smartest Christian with the greatest theology, but you will be able to stand in the face of suffering until Christ returns. And I don't know about you, but I hope my life is long. But in hoping for a long life, I'm also asking for God to help me endure through suffering that will surely come. So, thinking of this moment into the future, what more could I want than for God to work in me a steadfast faith that stands firm and is not moved all the days of my life? Oh, friends, that hope is better than understanding election to the fullest degree. That hope is better than understanding perfectly what the picture of baptism is doing. Friends, this is a, a wisdom that helps you stand faithful until the very end. But it's not just knowledge. What we're also learning, the wisdom that we will be given, is shown in Jesus' life. Luke chapter 22, verse 42. We, we will face trials with the conviction knowing that God is using them 
But I do believe over time that God will give us wisdom in not only knowing that he's using them, but the ability to embrace them. Why do we say that? Because our Lord Jesus Christ said this, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. If you are willing, remove this cup from me. It doesn't really sound like Jesus on an emotional level was really coming to terms with the cross. (laughs) Father, please don't let this be the way. But then he says this. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So how are we to face our trials? Well, the the answer is not easy, but it is simple. With joy. When these moments come into our life, we can meet them with joy. And the reason is, is because we understand that in these moments in our life, we, we don't have a God that is so cheap that he's literally just taking lemons and turning them into lemonade. As if there's a, a, a thing that we need to find to somehow just make this better. That's, that's not the God we serve. He's not that cheap. What Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 gives us the truest picture of what God is doing in our moments of suffering. Is his whole point to make us happy again? That he'll take this suffering and just turn it around? No. Let's end with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So is our God turning our lemons into lemonade? He is not. What he's doing is he's turning our suffering into an eternal weight of glory. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we help us. Father, work these truths into the fabric of who we are. Lord, help us to come to the conviction that you are a good God and that even in our suffering, you are at work doing an unimaginable, undescribable good work in us. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us, help us in our weakness. Help us to know that when we are weak, you are strong. And that you are doing in us what you ask of us through our trials. Well, Father, help us to be faithful. Give us a steadfast faith. And would you be honored and glorified in all of it. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.